thanks for checking out Covenant's podcast. Our prayer is that God uses this message to impact your life. There we go. You ready? Fired up? I'm not sure I want to take you into the game. Man, it's so good to see you. Um, so thankful uh, for you. So thankful for um, God. This, this, you know, this season and His generosity to us, His kindness to us, and the overflow of that. Uh, you know, to see you're not hiding some of you from me this morning, and um, and just grateful for this this opportunity to give thanks, really, ultimately to God for His provision, His protection. The overflow, the things that he has provided are things that he's, we're still asking him to provide in and through us as a church body. So, man, continue as I think Mary prayed that, just that his goodness, his kindness, may that continue to be evident uh, in the life of his church. And, and as for Mary, like, what is she still doing here? I feel like, yeah, there we go. No, man, come on. I, I feel like, though, like uh, the, the, the long goodbye, and, and I wish we could just kind of keep stretching that. Um, now, it was a few weeks ago, kind of had her up, so I know she asked, like, you want me up there again? Um, and, and really, the uh, biggest part of that is just really appreciate, Mary, your prayer for us as a church body, right? And obviously, the way in which you've embodied that and modeled that for us. So uh, we had that opportunity. If you guys missed it and you're thinking, man, why aren't we doing anything? We, we did something. We'll just keep on doing something. So... Um, but, uh, and again, just, just a, a huge thank you to you and your family. Um, and I will torture you these next couple of weeks before you go, so you'll really want to go. I mean, we want to make it that way. Um, hey, have you ever, just kind of watching that, that uh, bumper video that goes into this series that we kicked off last week, of, I don't know if you've been in that place, kind of down to your last your last pitch, the last play, the last down, and the clock is ticking, and the odds kind of stacked against you. And I, I've been on, on both sides of that. Like, like uh, I, I've missed more than my uh, fair share of shots, and I, I've made a few. Uh, that's in life and in sports. I, I've been the hero, and I've been the zero, and, and, and uh, I, I'm guessing you know which one I like better. Um, you know, which one is more fun. Um, but, um, but also which one um, has made me better and maybe made you better uh, by God's hand. It, it always helps for us to take a look at those kinds of moments and those times and look at them and put them into perspective, ultimately kind of eternal perspective, and to know that it's not over, the uh, game's not over, even if the clock maybe ticks down to zero, it's not over until he says it's over, and for those of us in Christ, that means it's never over. It's never over. There's always room for a comeback, no matter what the setback may have been, right? Uh, always the strength in Christ for us to bounce back, regardless of what it is that has pushed us down, whether it's at our own hand or the hand of someone else. I want to read uh, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 7 to 9 first. We, we now have... Uh, this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not 
destroyed. And then picking it up in verses 16 and 17, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small. I get it. They don't feel like it sometimes. But it says they're small in the scope of time and eternity. And they're not going to last very long. And they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. We are but clay jars. As someone has said, we're actually a bunch of, of pots, crack pots. Uh, but we're, we're weak, we're fragile, we're dirty, we're messy. But the extraordinary thing about us is that we were made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And, and, and though we are weak and frail and messy and dirty, within us there is this amazing treasure. And that treasure, in a word, is Jesus. That treasure is, is, is not a thing, it's a person. It's Christ in us, his power, his, his peace, his presence, his, his love. So whether, whether you're a, a Job, as we looked at last week, or a David, or a Rahab, or a Jonah, or any of the characters that we're going to do a deep dive into this summer in this series, because we are image bearers and Christ carriers, we have a reason, and we have the resources. Even when uh, we, we, we feel like we have missed the shot, and we feel like we've lost everything, because we are image bearers and Christ carriers, we, we don't ever need to give up. And we always have a way to get back up. Let me pray. Father God, as we, as we come to your word this morning, God, I acknowledge that, that I'm, just, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody, and that somebody is you. It's the only body that we, we truly need and the only one that will make a difference, and that's you, Jesus. And so I pray for every person who hears this today, whether now or, or tunes in at some later date, that, God, that you would speak and they would listen. I am absolutely convinced and confident that there is at least somebody who desperately needs to hear this word today. And so I pray that you might plant those seeds of truth as you, as you open up the pages of Scripture, as you open up yourself to us, and as you give us that which maybe we don't always know that we need, but we desperately need. I pray this in your name. Amen. There was a, 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 a rather famous English playwright by the name of uh, Noel uh, Coward, and he pulled a very interesting prank. Uh, at some point, he decided, I'm going to write a note, and, and I'm going to send this identical note. I'm going to send it to 20 very uh, famous men in London. And the anonymous note read simply this, everybody has found out what you were doing. And if I was you, I would leave town. 20 guys left town, okay? All 20, all 20. And I think there's a lot of us, I don't know, if you got that note, if that was sent to you, someone sent you a text anonymously and, and said that to you, what comes to mind? Because I think there's a lot of people who are hiding something from somebody, from the police or parents, teachers or bosses, friends or spouses. And many people today are also hiding something from God. What about you? I mean, sitting, you know, quietly, 
like literally some of the first service said, well, how appropriate you to act and preach this message on the week that we were invited to take our masks off. Yes, I'm inviting you to take your masks off in a different way, in a spiritual way. I don't care what you do physically, that's up to you. But something maybe on the inside that you're hiding, something that you don't want anyone else to know about, something that uh, maybe it's from a, a, a distant past, or, or maybe it's something that you're involved in, engaged in in some way, even as you listen to my voice today, hiding something you're desperately desperately wanting to keep a secret. Maybe it's an abortion or a shady deal or that thing that you took or, or, or that porn site that you visited or a test you cheated on and the lies you fabricated or you know, someone that you betrayed or a battle with addiction. I mean, the list could go on and on. No one knows yet. Your cover isn't blown yet. You haven't been caught yet, but you know it's there. And my friends, God knows it's there. And he wants you to know that he knows that it's there. There once was a man who, who blew it big time. I mean, there are a lot of men, but here's a, here's a guy who is super rich, incredibly powerful. He's a smart leader. He's full of wisdom. Um, he, he's he's uh, very godly, and, and you're going to know him best. He was the shepherd boy who defeated a, a giant with a slingshot, and his name is... That's better than the first service. It's better, but I... All right, who is it? Okay, there you go, King David. He, he was, that's a very familiar story. He was a shepherd boy who became Israel's third uh, uh, and, and most important king, right? It went Saul, and a lot of people go Saul, David. There was actually uh, a Shibosheth uh, who was for two years in between there, and then, and then uh, Solomon for another 40 years, but important king. And in fact, he's the most frequently mentioned person in the entire Old Testament. And he's second only to Jesus in the entire uh, Bible. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we find David late one afternoon. He's basically channel surfing on his roof. And he saw this unusually beautiful woman taking a bath. Bathsheba's not like because she bathed, okay? That just meant the daughter of, in case you were wondering. Um, but unusually beautiful woman taking a bath, and David is drawn in, and so he, he lingers and he looks, and then he looks again. And then he sends someone off, he sends one of his servants to find out about her, right? And then quickly he sends another servant to bring her to him so that he could have her. Now nothing in this passage, in this text, tell us that, that Bathsheba did anything wrong. To blame Bathsheba is, I believe, a form of, of uh, kind of a fairly misogynistic form of victim blaming. The Bible nowhere condemns Bathsheba, and, and neither should we. This was on, bottom line, this was on David. This was David. He wasn't caught in circumstances that were beyond his control, okay? He, 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 he planned, he plotted to carry out this sin, and he put all kinds of effort into trying to cover it up and conceal it. Here's this guy, here's David, uh, with great leadership qualities, incredible devotion to God, uh, loyalty, uh, and tremendous care for his people. Here's a man, uh, artistic genius, a poet. He, he wrote the majority of the Psalms. We'll look at a couple of those this morning. A man of tremendous courage and character. So with all that, with that resume, what happened? Where did this come from? 
I, I can tell you, we're not going to go into great detail. It didn't happen overnight. There were signs. There were signs that led up to this. But I think the simplest answer and the most accurate answer, the biblical answer, is very simple. It, it came from his sinful heart, his incurable sin nature. And church has kind of gotten away from even saying that and talking about that, but it's true. His nature, our nature, is one of sin. In the New Testament, we are told very clearly that there is no one who is righteous. No one, not one. David was a man, as we know, by testimony that God provided. He was a man, God said, after my own heart. And yet, he had a deceitfully wicked heart. A wicked heart that led him to adultery, that led him to a type of rape of power, deception, conspiracy, and cold-blooded murder. You've heard it said, right, that power corrupts, and absolute power what? Corrupts absolutely, and it's certainly true. It's true. It's played out again and again. What David imagined, he demanded. And so he sent for her, even though he knew that her husband was one of his loyal uh, soldiers. And a little while later, after all that transpired, David receives, you know, a, a little note from uh, signed B that just said, I'm pregnant. And, 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 and David immediately set to work trying to take care of it, right? He tried to cover up his sin he had, he sent for Uriah who was out in battle and he's like, Uriah, Uriah, come back. You deserve a break today. Come on back and spend some time with your wife. Right? Perfect plan. Uriah would receive a hero's, uh, you know, Uriah would come back and, and he would spend time with his wife and they would, everyone would assume, including Uriah, that, that the child was his. But the plot didn't work. The problem was that Uriah was too loyal he had too strong of a sense of, of duty. He didn't want to leave his, his fellow soldiers who were out battling, and he was taking it easy. So he, he didn't go in with her. He didn't spend time with her. And so in a desperate maneuver, because that didn't work, so I'll try something else, David ordered Uriah's murder. And not just Uriah's, but like all the soldiers around him. He goes, I'm going to leave you. You're going to lead the charge. You're going to go to the most dangerous spot on the wall, and then I'm going to have everyone else withdraw. Uriah would receive a hero's funeral and David would look sympathetic, right? Because he's marrying this grieving widow. He could get away with it. Or so he thought. Kind of. Sort of. Not really. See, a gospel that does not confront sin is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Biblically confronting sin, whether our own or someone else's, is, is, is at the very heart and essence of the gospel. It's, it's the very reason that God uh, sent his son, had planned from the beginning of time to send his son as an atoning sacrifice, that he might come as a Messiah, as a rescuer. And so when we confront sin, when, when we confront our own or someone else, it's a rescue mission. And David, who in truth was being consumed from the inside out, he needed to be rescued. He needed, desperately needed, to be released and redeemed and set free. But I think he was just like too spooked. He was too ashamed, kind of worldly guilt, if you will, by contrast. 
and, 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 and too protective, maybe of his position and his, his power and his privilege. And so here's what the Lord does. He couldn't go at him maybe directly, and no one else in the kingdom, that's King David. We're not going to touch David. He's untouchable. He's the king. So what God does is he sends someone, 2 Samuel, 12th chapter. So the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich, one was poor. And the rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle, and the poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and he grew up, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. And one day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious when he heard this story, when he heard this story from that, that Nathan had uh, concocted. And he said, as surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. And then, and then Nathan, Nathan uh, said to David, after finishing this story, he's like, dude, I mean, David, you're the man. You're that man. Get it? You're, you're, you're the man in the story. Nathan Lee then openly states what David had so, so uh, secretly attempted, so passionately uh, attempted to conceal. And then he says to David this in verses 11 and 12. He said, this is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I, I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes. And he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all of Israel. Now what happened next, after those words, if you let those sink in, what happened next, uh, I don't think happens very often in the chambers of kings and presidents and leaders. Plausible deniability displacement of blame, attack of the, the critic, you know, blaming someone else. That's the common uh, method of operation when someone is, is caught. But not David. David didn't do any of that. Verse 13 records that the king, in, in a moment of, I believe, brokenness, simply said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yes, you have. But the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. You won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord, by doing this, your child will die. And that child conceived in that moment, David and Bathsheba, within a week, passed. So he asked, did David deserve to die for what he did? I mean, David himself answers that question. He had sex with another man's wife. He lied. He betrayed. He, he, he concealed. I, I'm not sure if I walk through the Ten Commandments, probably four of the ten he, he took care of right then and there. And David answers the question. He said, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. But God showed mercy. Mercy is receiving not what we deserve, 
And what David deserved, what we all deserve, the penalty of sin is death. David deserved that, but that's not what he received. He received forgiveness. But I also want to be clear as we dig into that passage that forgiveness doesn't mean that there are no consequences to face. Heart-wrenching consequences would follow not only David, but also Bathsheba and, and, and their family for generations, innocent people as well who knew nothing of David's sin, an entire nation. David's story, David's story could be told and retold with a hundred different scenarios. The very best of us, we fall short. The very best of us, we, we sin. And like David, we have, in some of those moments, we have something that we, we like, deeply regret, that we're ashamed of, something that has impacted us and affected those around us in profound ways. And in that moment, you may be wondering, you may be thinking, how, how can I ever come back from this? Where am I going to find the, the courage and the strength to deal with the consequences that are are lining up as a result of this, that are pressing in on me? How am I going to erase the the guilt? How will I ever recover? Will I recover? Has Has God abandoned me, forsaken me, left me, written me off? Now, these questions are far more than hypothetical for me. I received, uh, in a way, a note like the one that Noel Coward wrote. Everybody, everybody has found out what you're doing. And I knew exactly what they were talking about, even if they didn't. And I will tell you, I desperately wanted to leave town. I was physically, emotionally, and spiritually paralyzed. David's story hits really close to home. Working on this sermon uh, this week, reflecting on it the last several weeks in preparation, it was like it came easily and painfully, both at the same time, because I'd been there. Some of you know the details, but many of you don't. Now, I haven't hidden it. I was very upfront with leadership, with others, when, when I was in process and talking with the church. I've been upfront since because it doesn't define me. I don't feel like I need to walk around with a scarlet letter on my chest. Fourteen years ago, I was a David. And I, um, I abused my power and my position. By that time, I had been a lead pastor for nearly 20 years. And I committed a, an unthinkable, unimaginable sin. And I was unfaithful to, to my wife and to my children and to my call and most of all to the Lord. 
and I hid it. And I denied it, and I lied about it, and it was ugly, and I was ugly. So I, I, I can identify with David. Now, I knew deep down that I wasn't going to get away with it, and secretly I didn't want to get away with it. Secretly, I hoped that somehow it would come out because it was consuming, draining, but I didn't want to face the consequences. And there were major consequences. Lost a lot. Even to the point, honestly, even to the point of believing that I'd be better off if I just wasn't around. Other people would be better off if I just wasn't around. In the days and the many months that followed that public revelation of my sin were brutal. But by God's grace, that wasn't the end of the story. God brought me back. Only God could bring me back. I'm here today because he is a God who loves and a God who is able to help people back to their feet, to pull them up out of the, the pit. It wasn't quick. It certainly wasn't easy. But in, in my weakness, his grace was sufficient. I want to take you to the rest of the story, to David's and mine and possibly yours. David's example is here to remind us that we're all caught red-handed. No matter how well we, we, we may try to conceal it and camouflage it, but he also shows us, David shows us a, a road to redemption. Not in the absence of the pain and the consequences, but a road to redemption, the steps to making a comeback. The simple statement by David in 2 Samuel, I have sinned against the Lord. That simple statement that set that path is amplified as David writes out a private confession in Psalm 51. It's written um, after Nathan confronted David with his sin. And it's a model prayer for the penitent. And I want you to see how this prayer marks out the steps that we can take to experiencing spiritual comeback from the guilt and the shame and the pain of sin. It's a psalm that I read again and again and again thanks to the Nathans in my life who had the courage to confront me, not to condemn me, but to care for me. Let's read it. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there 
purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. And you will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. So from this psalm, I, I quickly want to end by giving you four steps to a comeback. Four steps. The first one is take responsibility. Take responsibility. Notice that David doesn't, he doesn't fall into the, the self justifying trap of shifting the blame. He doesn't say, you know, hey, I was having a really bad day. <laughs> and, and well, you know, boys will be boys. Um, the devil made me do it, right? He, he doesn't excuse himself and he doesn't blame someone else. He faces the music, it's my iniquity, it's my transgression, it's my sin against you, Lord, and you alone have I sinned. You have to own it. You gotta own it. David, David doesn't like try to bargain here. He doesn't try to cut a plea deal. He, in fact, as he closes verse four, he acknowledges to God, he's like, God, you're right. Your judgment over my sin, it's just. It's right. You have to own it and acknowledge what's true. Take responsibility. And I'll tell you, if, if you, if you don't take the first step, if you can't own it, if you don't take responsibility, then, then you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle to move forward and experience the kind of freedom that God has for you. So take responsibility. Step two is come clean. So you, you own it, and then you've got to admit it. David lived, I lived in denial for a period of time. It looks like in the passage almost that, hey, this happened, and then, and then God sent, uh, uh, you know, Nathan. And like, like no, there, there's months that transpired between there. Okay? We don't always see the time in between, but if you go back to, we'll look at Psalm 32 in a moment. You can look at even Psalm 51. You see some time has passed. So time passes before he came clean and admitted his guilt and this psalm now is this desperate, it's this gut-wrenching, it's this, it's this confession of guilt by a man who, who, who I believe seriously longs for and misses the closeness of the relationship that he had with God. What happens if you don't come clean? Actually looking for a really obvious answer. If you don't come clean, you, you stay dirty, okay? If you, don't, if you don't wash, I mean, summer's coming. 
Good luck, parents. Why do I have to take a bath? Why do I have to make my bed? I'll let you answer that. My kids are grown. I'm done. Um, but you're just going to stay dirty. What happens if you just stuff it, if you ignore it, if you deny it, if you pretend it didn't happen? Does it go away? I'm going to tell you what it's like. I want to tell you what it's like, but I'm going to use David's words that I can resonate with. Psalm 32, verses 2 through 4. When I kept silent, my bones, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Get what I'm talking about? Steve uh, Arterburn, a Christian uh, psychologist and pastor, writes that there are really kind of like three excuses that um, people tend to throw out, you know, hide behind whatever, rather than come clean, rather than coming clean. You could be, you know, you're afraid of losing your reputation. I get that. You're afraid of losing your favorite sin. Or three, you're afraid that it might cost you, that there's going to be consequences financially or emotionally or relationally. I don't know what, which excuse... Maybe that automatically kind of in your own nature gets thrown up as a barrier between you and God, as, as a barrier to honest and sincere taking of responsibility and coming clean. And, but you need to count the cost. Count the cost. It's not worth it. I often say to others like, man, if, you, if one thing that I can do is you can learn from my mistakes, man. Life, you know, we learn a lot of things the hard way. Why not learn them through someone else's hard way? Count the cost. It's not worth it. Trust me, I know there's a better way. There's a better way. Come clean. Tell God like it is. Not because, not because you've been caught or only because you've been caught, but out of a genuine and deep sorrow for your rebellion against the authority of God, the power of God, the lordship of God. And, and, and in that moment, that about face of the penitent to repent, to, to say, man, I'm sincerely desiring to turn away from that and back to him. Confession is not telling something uh, to God that God doesn't already know. He knows. He just wants you to know that he knows so that you both know. I think that's, yeah. The word confession means what? Agre to agree with. To agree with. So, so when you confess, you're just agreeing with, with God, all right? You're not shocking him. You're not surprising him. You're not telling him something that he doesn't already know, right? You're just agreeing. When we confess our sins to God, we agree with God that something twisted in us, something broken in us, something misdirected, misguided, you know, awful in us needs to be straightened out, needs to be fixed. And it's not something that we can do for ourselves, but something that he can do. And that's why step three is we need to receive God's forgiveness to receive it. When David cries out for mercy, he's appealing to God's ability and, and God's willingness. Lord, do this, do this because you can do this. 
because of your love and your compassion. As you look at those verses, have mercy on me because you're merciful. Be merciful to me. Forgive me because that's who you are. That's what you do. Because of, we know on this side of the cross, because of not a sacrifice that was made again and again, as was true in the Old Testament, that blood needed to be shed, but it was shed once and for all in Jesus Christ on the cross. By his blood. I know that's that's an odd kind of imagery, but it's through his blood that our stains are made white as snow. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just, and he is willing to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? That's such a promise. That's such good news for us. Honestly, I'll just tell you, I, I really struggled, though, to receive God's forgiveness. Struggled with it. You know, I had taught and preached that kind of message for years, but man, somehow I'm like, I thought I was too bad to be forgiven. And then a good friend of mine let me know that once again I was making it about me. And he put it in pastoral terms. He said, Rob, you're like acted all self-righteous. I'm like, what are you talking about? Quickly, I knew exactly what he was talking about. Truth is that you can't be too bad to receive his forgiveness. You can't be too bad to receive his forgiveness. Sin is a level playing field, all sin, whatever the sin. Consequences vary, but sin is sin. But let me tell you this, you also can't be too good not to need his forgiveness. So stop looking at yourself in terms, in your own terms, in in, in terms of what you've done or where you've been, and see yourself as Christ sees you, as image bearers and Christ carriers. Envision who you are and what you can become in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, then what? They are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Take responsibility. Come clean and receive God's forgiveness. And then number four, let God restore you. Let God restore you. Let God redeem your life and restore you to the the fruitfulness and the faithfulness that might be yours in Christ in the days ahead. David asked the Lord in verses 11 to 15, he's like, don't push me away. Restore to me the joy and the purpose in my life again and fill my lips with praise. This was David saying, God, I want to get back in the game. In some ways, maybe he saw what happened to Saul, and he, I don't want that to happen to me. I want to get back in the game. I I want this pain to be used for your purposes so so that I can say to someone else who's thinking what I'm thinking, man, it's not worth it. I've been there and I have the scars to prove it and there is a better way and oh, how I get that. That's why I vowed to open, be open with my story as the Lord asked me to be open with my story. I will tell you, I cringe every time. But I'm compelled. Out of the overflow of God's grace, I am compelled not to waste the pain, but to allow him to redeem it over and over and over and over again. 
It's an act of worship. It's an act of praise. It's a testimony of his grace. That's why when we share our testimonies and we walk through that, it's like, what, what was it like before? And still asking the question, what is it like now? What is God doing in your life now? How is he redeeming your life now? For four years, for four years, my ordination was suspended. It was one of many consequences. It wasn't the most painful, but it was one of them. And I'll tell you that I'm, I'm grateful I'm grateful for every minute of discipline and correction and learning and healing that those years provided. I'm not saying like, man, it was fun. <laughs> it was not fun. But I'm grateful for it. And while I, I didn't have any visions, any expectations, I mean, I, was, I could have fled from that, not entered into the process of discipline, as tempting as that was, but it's like, man, I need to own it. I want God to redeem it in my own life and to my kids and to my children's children in whatever ways that he might redeem it. But at the time, I had no visions of going back into vocational ministry. Zero. Honestly, it was like the last thing I wanted to do. Still is some days. So when my ordination was reinstated, that wasn't like, that wasn't the celebration. But I will tell you, I'm grateful for the miraculous sign of God's grace in writing that chapter in my comeback story. It isn't that there's not hurt back there, all right? That there isn't shame back there, that there isn't wounds back there. It's not that there aren't still consequences to deal with. But Christ has redeemed it all. That's what he does. And he uses it to put on display his goodness and his grace and his glory. So at the place that I thought was like the end was actually just the beginning. It's not where you start. It's what you become. It's what you become in Christ and through Christ and for Christ. So I don't, I don't, I don't know where you're at. I don't know... If, if you're here today, and maybe, maybe there is something you stuffed away and you've hidden. I don't know what the degree of that is. But I want to invite you. We're going to take a moment of confession and, and, and pray the prayer of the penitent that David modeled for us in Psalm 51. And so there's, now, there's room. So if you want to stand, if you want to kneel, whatever posture you want to take, really just a posture of openness, however God's been speaking to you, whatever he's brought to mind, that he wants you to agree with him. I'm just going to pray this prayer. Let's go ahead and put it up for me anyway. And as I pray this, you, you get to insert, as I'm going to insert, your own name. So let's pray together. Have mercy. Have mercy. Have mercy on me, O oh God. Because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. 
For I recognize my rebellion, and it haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You're going to be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment I was conceived, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins. And I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep me. Don't keep looking at my sins, but remove them. The stain of my guilt created in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Do not take your spirit from me. Instead, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Make me willing to obey you so that I'll teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood. O God who saves, and I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You did not desire a sacrifice, or I, I would offer one. You don't want burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit, and you will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. O God. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on each person who right now is crying out to you in your name and openly acknowledging and confessing, taking ownership and responsibility of what it is, whatever it is, however long ago it was or how present the reality of it is, anything that we have done, thought, said, left undone that is contrary to your will and your word, that is a blatant rebellion against you. And, oh, God, I thank you that when we do that, that you are faithful and just, that your word is true, that as far as the east from the west, you remove our sins from us and they are no more. Only you can do that. Any attempt that we take to try to rescue ourselves, to, to, to preserve ourselves, our, our reputation, our our comfort, whatever it is, it falls short. It doesn't work. But you, oh God, you, we're never, we're never too bad to be beyond your reach, your loving hand. We're never too good not to need the embrace of your love. We need you. We don't deserve you, but we need you. So I thank you that you come that you came and that you come and that you're here even today. For anyone who's calling upon your name, for anyone who's confessed and acknowledged their sin before you, God, love them, heal them, forgive them, restore them, and set them on a path. Set them on a path of, of willing, desiring, obedience, In abundance knowing that we'll do it again and we'll come again but every time every time you're the same your love and grace are sufficient because that's who you are that's what you do I give thanks for that I give thanks and rejoice in that In your name, Jesus.